And turn to Colossians 1 if you have a Bible with you. We read that passage that we'll be looking at this morning and then a little beyond that. We've been learning from Colossians that you don't need anything else other than what you already have in Christ. If you're a, a Christian, you don't need something else. Yes, you grow in it. Yes, you bear fruit from it. But you don't need another kind of thing. It was the gospel, Paul said, that was, verse 6, bearing fruit and growing in their midst. Not something else, but the gospel. So we grow in the Christian life by better understanding what Christ has already perfectly done for us. That's what motivates whatever else we do for him or unto him. Now you might remember that this book of Colossians is written in part to address some false teachers that were seeming to trouble the church in Colossae. These false teachers were teaching various kinds of Jesus plus. Jesus plus philosophy. Jesus plus some new knowledge. Jesus plus some secret information that you don't know about. Jesus plus Jewish legalism. And Jewish, uh, Jesus plus man-made rules. Now these things are mostly addressed in chapter 2. But they're scattered hints throughout the book. Paul's giving anecdotes even here in chapter 1. Before he formally addresses these problems. This false teaching in chapter 2. What I mean is look at verse 9. You see Paul emphasizing all. All. Every. In verse 9, I'm sorry, at the end of verse 9 specifically, he says that you be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom. To walk, verse 10, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work. Verse 11, all power, all endurance. You see how that's an anecdote to the false teaching of Jesus plus something else. Should remind us perhaps of Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing already. Or 2 Peter 1, 3. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. We don't need something else. We need to grow and bear fruit in the thing we've already been given, the gospel. Now our passage for this Sunday, verses 15 to 20, is about who Jesus is. And it sits in the context of what he did. So last week, well, two weeks ago, when we looked at verses 9 to 14, what Paul gives thanks for there, he's giving thanks for what comes through Jesus, what gifts we have in Jesus. And then verse 21, on to verse 23, which we read this morning, talk about other things that come in Jesus. You know, what we've been seeing and what we'll see today is we never really get beyond who he is And what he did. Now Paul will get to some very practical things later on in this book. Chapters 3 and chapters 4 tell us some specific things not to do. Some some things to do. It, It tells us about relationships and the church. What the church should be and how it should operate in some ways. It tells us about family. It tells us about parenting and marriage. It tells us also about work. But Paul, notice this, is not in a hurry to get to those things without first talking about what the gospel is and who Christ is 
in what he gives, in what it means for us. He insists on certain beliefs, certain realities before he ever tells us what to do and how to live. Now, this leads us to talk about something that's very important, something that you need to tuck away and remember for the rest of your life, something that you hopefully can use basically any time you open your Bible and try to understand it. When I was, I think, third grade or fourth grade, I had an English teacher who stood on the top of his desk to introduce prepositions because he told us prepositions are really important. And you'll remember prepositions for the rest of your life because he was kind of a straight-laced guy, you know, didn't goof off much at all. And here he is standing on his desk. How odd. Well, I'm not going to do anything weird. But can you just take that away for, you know, that word picture away and, and apply it here to what I'm about to say? Something that many of you haven't heard before. Some of you have heard it before. You'll, you'll even be able to finish my sentences for me as I'm talking about this. But even still, if you know about this, you need reminding. Here's what I'm talking about. The difference between indicatives and imperatives. Bear with me. Indicatives are what is. What is reality? As opposed to imperatives, what should be? Indicatives are descriptions. They're statements of fact. Imperatives are commandments. You should. You shall. You will. You know, the difference is, indicative, Ryan is out of shape. It's a descriptive statement. Imperative is, Ryan, you must get into shape. Now, thankfully, you can't command me to do that. But you you get the idea, right? Indicatives indicate. Imperatives are imperative. So we say, it's imperative that you obey your teacher at school. That's imperative. You get it, hopefully, what what the difference is. And and in the Bible, these things are given to us. Not not explicitly. The word indicative, I don't think, is in the Bible. But it's a a tense in the Greek language, just like it is in, in English. There are indicatives and there are imperatives. There are parts of the Bible which tell us what reality is already and then parts which tell us what to do and what to change and and how to live. Now, we all want imperatives, commandments. We all want a list. We want our to-dos. We're an enormously practical, action-oriented sort of culture. So most preaching today is all about the the imperatives. Do this. Stay away from that. Do that. Here's how. Here's how I do it. In fact, many of the imperatives in today's preaching aren't even biblical imperatives. They're more practical advice about how to do the biblical imperatives. So a biblical imperative is husbands love your wives. We don't like the vagueness of that, do we? So a lot of preaching doesn't say, husbands, love your wives. It it gives practical suggestions about, get her flowers this week. Write her your poor attempt at a poem this week. Right? Do a weekly date night. Now, none of that is bad advice. But none of it's in the Bible explicitly. None of it is wrong to be in a sermon, a a message. Some practical advice can be useful. But for some of us, that's practically 
our Bible. These practical takeaways that we might get at the end of a week. Just tell me what to do. Tell me what I can, I, I can take away. Also, a lot of the indicatives, descriptions of reality in much of today's preaching is not about the Bible's indicatives, but they're about cultural observations, psychological observations, even just funny observations. You know, we're all busy today. That makes for a good preaching paragraph. Or, the stock market stinks today. And then you go on from there. Or, teenagers are always a pain in the butt. And then, ah, yeah, yeah, every parent claps. and You know, that makes for good preaching today. But we not only want more imperatives today, we're even okay to have those imperatives without biblical indicatives, biblical descriptions. Now, we're way out of whack on all this. We have the wrong indicatives. We don't care about biblical indicatives, descriptions. We love imperatives. And especially we love the ones that aren't in the Bible. And we may want the imperatives for all the wrong reasons. You see, it's easy to give you a a checklist at the end of a sermon and say, go and do, and and if it's a checklist, you can cross off, get her flowers, write her a bad poem, take her on a date, I can do that, and then I can feel accepted, justified, right, even proud. You see, sometimes we don't like the vagueness of God's imperatives, and so we're desperate for more specific commandments so that we can feel like we have done them. We can know whether or not we've done them. But what we see in Scripture is that there are a ton of indicatives, especially in the New Testament. I I have no way of studying this quickly, so I didn't do it this week, but I'm betting there are more indicatives in the New Testament than there are imperatives. And the indicatives basically always come before the imperatives. The indicatives lead the way and prepare the path for what to do and how to live. So in Colossians, roughly the first third of the book of Colossians is indicative, descriptive of what we are in Christ and who he is and what he's done for us. The last third is about imperatives, what to do, how to live, how to love your wife. The stuff in the middle is really what we call polemic. It's critical of bad theology. Paul's pointing out some false teaching and addressing it. Think of the book of Ephesians. First three chapters. It's doctrine. It's description. It's indicative. Then the the last three chapters are more imperative. Commandments. Here's what you do. And yet even there, chapters 4 through 6, Paul is sprinkling indicatives throughout those chapters while he's giving these imperatives. He never goes far from why we do these things. Who we are in Christ that leads us to love wives and put on the armor and such and such. Romans, for instance, is even more in this extreme, you could say, of emphasizing the indicatives, other than a couple short passing exemptions, the imperatives in Romans don't come until when? Anyone want to venture a chapter number? No commandments, basically, except for a couple that you wouldn't even notice because they're so buried in indicative. Commandments don't come until chapter 12. Chapter 1, 
through chapter 11 are descriptions. What is, what we believe, what we know. And then he'll get specific in chapter 12. Yes, weep with those who weep and, and, and rejoice with those who rejoice. But he's not in a hurry to get there. Not before teaching on sin and justification and Christ's death and new life in Christ. And God's love, the unchangeableness of God's love and, and election. So here's my point for us in Colossians 1 this morning. Here we have descriptions of who Jesus is and what he did. No commandments. All indicatives. And about now, some of you are craving a good to-do message. Just give me something practical. Okay, I would. But Paul hasn't yet. Here's what we have to be formed by the word of God and let not the culture but the Bible shape and form even our desires and what we think we need. We need Jesus. We need more of a vision of who Jesus is and what he did. The imperatives of Colossians 3 and 4, the wonderful practical teaching on parenting and marriage and work in chapter 3 and chapter 4 are of no use without the glorious indicatives of chapter 1. They are meaningless moralisms without Christ, without the gospel, without our new identity. Paul would tell us Christ is enough for us. Paul would remind us of 2 Corinthians 11 where he wrote, don't be led astray by the simplicity that's in Christ. Simplicity. So we look at these verses today and we behold them because we're told in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that by beholding Christ we're changed. Uh, Being changed is a good thing. We want to be changed, and rightly so. But we think that the the pathway is always a list of practical to-dos, preferably the ones that I can actually do and know that I've done. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, We're changed by beholding him, looking at him, staring at him, meditating upon him. And that's what we'll do today. John Owen was a, a Puritan in the 17th century, And he wrote a great book on this topic, Meditations on the Glory of Christ. Let me just give you a bit. It's a little thick, 17th century, and Owen was hard to read even in the 17th century. But bear with me. In beholding the glory of Christ, the life and power of faith are most eminently seen. And from the exercise of faith, Love toward Christ rises and springs. If therefore, it gets easier, if therefore we desire to have faith with all of its vigor or love in all of its power, giving rest, complacency and satisfaction unto our souls, we are to seek for them in the diligent duty of meditating Upon the glory of Christ. Then he says, herein would I live. Herein would I die. Hereon would I dwell in my thoughts and affections. To the withering 
and consumption of all other painted beauties of this world unto the crucifying of things here below. Until they become unto me a dead and deformed thing, no way fitting for my infectionate, affectionate embraces. He's not saying anything other than keep me from beholding worthless things and quicken me in your word, Psalm 119. He's not suggesting anything for us except Colossians 3.1. Set your mind on things above where Christ is seated. So we're going to set our mind on Christ this morning. And that's enough for us. These verses, some say, are an early hymn. They're certainly poetic. Short, punchy, poetic descriptions. Perhaps intended to be memorizable like an early creed. What we know for sure from Colossians 1, 15 to 20 is that it's some of the most densely packed theology on Jesus in all the Bible. Now, if you remember from our study of Luke some months ago, we saw all kinds of descriptions of Jesus, stories of Jesus. And remember, a lot of those stories were about his plainness. They were almost an oddity about, well, what he was like. And he was born poor. He was born in suffering. He was frequently thought to just be some sort of wandering, self-appointed prophet. But what we saw from Luke is that there were these glimpses of glory, right? There were just these glimpses, though, in, in this miracle or this authority that he expresses or this crazy thing that he says. There were glimpses of glory and power, but they were often just glimpses so that sometimes you can actually be sympathetic with those who don't see it and don't get it. They were, after all, just looking at a guy, not a guy with a glowing circle behind him. Colossians 1 gives us something of the MRI or the x-ray of what's behind the scenes here. It gives us more, perhaps, than the apostles could see even right after the resurrection. More, perhaps, than John the Baptist ever knew. So let's look at these descriptions here. There are about 10 in verses 15 to 20, but we can combine a few and put them down to about five different headings to meditate upon. We'll start with the key verse and the main theme. First, Jesus is preeminent. He's preeminent. That's in verse 18. That he in everything might be preeminent. What is preeminence? It means that he is over all. That he, that he is all. It's not even that he's number one. It's that he's everything. So I've said this a dozen times. You can finish the sentence for me probably if you've been here for a long time. But, but it's worth pointing out again, even if it's repetitious. That in the Old Testament, God says, I am the Lord and there is none besides. And the S at the end is important. There are none besides him. Not none beside him, which would say there's no one next to me. Instead, what, what the Bible says is there is none besides him, none at all. He's everything. He's not number one. He's number two. He's number three. Keep going down the list. He's in all, and it's all for him. Jesus is this part of God's plan. God's plan is for Jesus to get glory and for his name to spread and for his fame to grow. His 
plan is for Jesus to be all in all. That's how Paul puts it in Ephesians 1. That he might be filling all in all. I'm not even positive I know what that means. But I know it's big. When you, hiccup, when you hitch up alls, you've got multiple alls. He's all in all. That's big. That's preeminent. You could say that's the theme of the whole Bible. It's certainly the theme of the whole book of Colossians. And it seems to be the theme that ties verses 15 to 20 together. He's eternal. Verse 18, he is the beginning. That hints at Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God. Paul saying, in the beginning, Jesus. It's even more of a hint for any Jews reading this who were familiar with their Hebrew Bibles, their Old Testament. Our, our Bible calls the first book Genesis. But that's the first word that's in their Bible. It's the same word as beginning. We could call our first book of the Bible in the English beginnings. So imagine hearing this. Jesus is the Genesis. You'd go, oh, you mean book one. You mean the beginning of the beginning. He's the beginning. He's God. Oh, I know it says that he's also the firstborn. We'll get to that. It sounds like he wasn't eternal because he had a beginning. That he was born somehow. But Jesus himself claimed to be God. It's not just what Paul says here in Colossians 1 that I think necessarily tells us that Christ is God. But, but Jesus said what he is, who he is in such a way so often that his friends got it because they worshipped him. And his enemies got it because they wanted to kill him. They understood how big his statements were. Did you know the first heresies about Jesus in the early church actually denied his humanity, not his divinity? Did you know that it's actually roughly three centuries of church history before anyone really denies Jesus' divinity? Oh, they're trying to work it out how to put them together, humanity and divinity. But often we hear things like the divinity of Jesus was made up by the church much after the life of Jesus. Well, Colossians is three decades after Jesus walked. Not that long after. It says Jesus is God. And that's just not true of church history to say that it, his divinity was made up later. He is preeminent because he's God. Secondly, he's preeminently the image of God. It says in verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. Now, this might remind you that all human beings are created in God's image. Genesis 2.15. What that means is that human beings have rationality. They have thought. They have emotion. They have creativity. They have ownership. They have wills. They, they have decision-making capabilities. They have communication and relationship with each other. Basically, all the things that set human beings apart from the rest of the created world is what it means that humans are created in God's image. Oh, I, I know that uh, animals have a hint of this here and there. You know, I know chimpanzees are smarter than rats. Okay? I know your dog sometimes looks like he's smiling. I know swans mate for life. Beautiful story. 
But these are just hints within the animal kingdom. That's a given in humanity. Those things are a given in humanity. So something's fundamentally different. And the Bible tells us that that's not a difference of degree. So that dolphins are made in God's image too, but not quite as much because they don't build anything. No. It's not a difference of degree between animals and human beings. It's different of kind. The Bible says that we're created in God's image. But, but we have this image, and now it's fall, fallen. It's now wrecked. It's now marred. It's not like a broken mirror where you can still see something of the semblance of the reflection, but it has cracks and there's a distortion. Christ is not only a non-sinful, unbroken reflection of God. He is actually God in the flesh. He is everything that God intended his people to be and more. So it's similar to the way human beings were created in God's image, and yet, in another way, it's something like that and totally different. Here's what I mean. John 14 Listen to these verses, Jesus talking. He said, if you had known me, you'd know my father also. For now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Philip said to him, get this, Lord, show us the father. That's enough for us. Yeah, just show us God. That's enough. That's all we're asking. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Do you not believe that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I'm in the Father. The Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. Similar to Hebrews 1. One more. Let me draw this out a bit. There it says, long ago, at many times and in many places, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets in the Old Testament. But these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. Whoa. And yet, this glory obviously is Veiled in flesh. That's the language of that great Christmas carol. Hark the herald that the angels sing. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. You see something of the Godhead in Jesus, and yet it's veiled. It's a little discreet. It's not complete glory. Remember, Moses asked to see God's glory. And God said, Moses, you see my glory, you die. How about this? I'll put you in a rock, and then I'll put my hand over you to cover you. And then I'll um, pass by and let just the tail of my glory, kind of like a, a comet tail or a meteor tail, I'll let that pass by. And then just right then I'll remove my hand and you'll see just a reflection of the backside of my glory. And even with that, Moses' face was glowing. So in Jesus we have veiled glory, but true glory nonetheless. It means you want to see how God loves you look at Jesus. You want to see what God cares about. You look at Jesus. You want God? You go through Jesus. You want to see God? You look at Jesus. 
And isn't the obvious implication for us today in the 21st century that we don't go over to the Middle East to go looking for them? We go to the Word. We go to the Bible. We go to words to try to find Jesus and to see him more clearly. He's the firstborn, it says in verse 15. But this doesn't mean he was born. Well, he was born in Bethlehem, approximately 5 B.C., Yes, but this doesn't mean he was in times past born in order to be the son of God. He is eternally the son of God. Being firstborn here has nothing to do with Bethlehem. Firstborn here is a title of honor, inheritance, relationship with the father. It's not chronological. He was born first. But it's cultural and symbolic. He's the Son of God and has been the Son of God from the beginning. He's God, even though he's the Father's Son. He's eternally God and he's eternally the Son. Just like a son isn't the same person as his father, but they're both still human, right? You and your son are both human, but one is a father, one is a son, and it blows our mind to think that there could be a father and a son that are the same age. But that's just thinking with our human sort of thoughts. Firstborn means that Jesus outranks all. Firstborn means in him, verse 19, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. You see something similar in Colossians 2.9. Look at that. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. What does that mean? That means that though in flesh, though a human being, Jesus isn't just a third God. He's not even just a half God. He's fully God and fully human. We believe in a Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And yes, that's beyond our comprehension, but but it shouldn't surprise us that we have a God whose nature and person, whose essence is beyond our comprehension. Remember, it wasn't that long ago in human history that doctors were still bleeding people out and putting leeches on and and assuming that every illness was from from some sort of bowel demon. We know better now. It's often not a bowel demon, it's... McDonald's, or something like that. No, we we know now it's, you know, there's so many explanations on a microbiological level. We have ways of finding out what's below the surface, unlike they did back then. If we have that kind of growth of knowledge, we shouldn't be surprised that the infinite, eternal God knows some things about himself and has revealed some things about about himself that we get hints of and yet don't see the fullness of. No surprise. He's the firstborn. He is the fullness of God. Third, Jesus is preeminent in creation. He's the creator of the world, verse 16 says. By him all things were created, from the smallest atom to the largest star. How big is our universe? I know the answer we're supposed to give is that no one knows for sure, but we suspect it's infinite. If you're a scientist and you've got a better answer, a more to-date answer of how big the universe is, that please let me know. It'd be nice if we knew something a little bit more about the universe than 
We know it's really big. We're not sure how big. It might be infinite. That seems odd. By the way, if the universe seems that mysterious to us, we shouldn't be surprised that the one who spoke it into existence by his very breath is mysterious. Let's just take our galaxy, though. Our galaxy, the Milky Way. If you were traveling at light speed, I think that's 486,000 miles per second. Is that right? I thought of that in years. Might not be. Whatever. Light speed. You got it? It's right before hyperspeed, I think. And there's ludicrous speed eventually. All right. If you're traveling light speed through our galaxy, it would take you 100,000 years to get from one end to the other. That's big. And yet, that's a pretty small galaxy in the universe. Our sun is a pretty average-sized star. just happens to be the closest one to us. It's a million times bigger than the earth. Just a star. Jesus made it. Now, obviously, Paul is making clear to the Colossians and everyone around them that Jesus isn't just a historical figure. He's not just a good teacher. He's God. And yet, keep in mind, too, that in Greco-Roman culture in the first century, they would have been okay with that. Oh, he's a God? Great. Throw him in the bag. Even today, 21st century America, people aren't mad that you say you worship Jesus. Cool. I'm sure that's... That's good for you. I'm sure that helps you. But Paul insists that Jesus is the creator. And by doing so, he squeezes out any kind of relativity and polytheism that there are other gods out there. He's saying he made it all. Before anything existed, Jesus was there. Whatever is there is from him. No other gods. John 1 says, without him, nothing was made that was made. He's God. And he's not one of the options or one of the gods or even a good god or a good option. He's the one and only because he made it all. And he's the creator and ultimate ruler over, verse 16, look at the rest, over thrones. In heaven and on earth, visible and and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. And in case he wasn't clear, all things is what I'm talking about here. Notice how he's stacking up categories. Every conceivable base of understanding Jesus and the realm of creation is put together with overlap in repetition to make a point. There is nothing, nowhere that he didn't make, whether it's in heaven or on earth, whether it's physical or spiritual. Any authority, not just Satan, not just heaven's angels, Not just kings of the Old Testament that he made a scene on, but all authority. That means that demons who are in rebellion, Jesus is still Lord. It means what Martin Luther liked to say, the devil is God's devil. God doesn't do the evil that Satan does, but he's not threatened by it. 
It's not as though he couldn't stop it. He's the reason for everything. Verse 16, all things were created through Jesus, including all these different realms, different authorities, and they are for him. Westminster Catechism, question one says, what's chief, the, the chief end of man? What, why are we here? Why are we created? Why do we live and exist? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Or like Romans 11 says at the very end, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. He's not only the creator of it all, it's all for him. And he's intimately involved. He's the ruler. He's the sustainer, verse 17 tells us. The sustainer of this universe. Like Hebrews 1 says, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. It means the universe is not self-sufficient. It's, it, it's not been wound up and set on a shelf. This means that people are not self-sufficient if they only eat well enough and stay out of traffic. You cannot preserve yourself. Can you fathom the fearful reality of denying the existence of or being mad at the God who holds all things together, together including the molecules and particles and atoms that make up your heart? no matter how much we want to believe that he doesn't sustain things this intimately, the Bible insists that he does. Do you live and trust like he's this sovereign? Do you live like everything in this world is for him? Kids are for him, not you. You are for him not you. Your job, your toys, your plans, it is all from him and for him. Fourth, Jesus is preeminent in the church. Verse 18 tells us he's the head of the body, the church. Now let's start out by noticing that this verse assumes the church. It assumes the necessity of the church. This verse tells us, basically, there's no Jesus without the church. There's no church without Jesus. Jesus and his church go together, and you can't have one without the other. No surprise then that he told Peter, you love me? Feed my sheep. Or that first John says, you can't love him when you don't love the brothers and sisters. Or what Jesus said to Saul on the road to Damascus, what you've done to the church, Saul, you've done it to me. You've persecuted the church, you're persecuting me. There is an inextricable tie between Jesus and his church. It's his body. Think of the metaphor. He's the head. The church is the body. You say, oh, it's universal church, right? Universal church, it just means Christians scattered everywhere. Who's Paul writing to? 
universal Christians scattered everywhere who sometimes get together for a little worship but make no commitments. No, he's writing to a church. He's writing to a church with leaders and a, a church that does sacraments and a church that gets together and a church that holds each other accountable. He's talking about church. He's the head of the church. He's its savior and its husband, its Lord. He protects its church. He, he, pro, he builds his church. He keeps and preserves his church. He gifts his church in just the way he sees fit. Sometimes it seems undergifted to his church. Do you really view the church like it's Lord Jesus's? Do you view this church like it is? Do you constantly go back to the fact that he's the head? You're not, I'm not. No leadership structure from within the church is. How often do you ask yourself when you're really worked up about something in the church, is this the mind of Christ? Does Jesus share my concerns? And if so, in the same way and with the same motives? Well, this leads us now to hope. The fifth thing, Jesus is preeminent in reconciliation. Verse 20, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Oh, how we need reconciliation. Oh, how we need his peace. We're not by nature right with him, and that's why reconciliation is needed, and that's why peace with him is needed, and that's why we don't have peace in our souls and in our homes and in society. Jesus has revealed himself as a majestic king, and this might, this might stump you a bit, and he's come to this earth in poverty and suffering. He was mocked and spit upon and killed. You say, that doesn't go together. Majestic king, suffering guy. This king has chosen to reveal himself in nearness and gentleness, compassion, love. Yes, truth. But get this, he became one of us. We're not talking about a king who's far away on his throne in don't you come near. We're not talking about a king who's majestic and regal but locked up away from us. He has come to us and he's come to redeem us. He's come to reconcile us. I pray you'd know that and I pray you wouldn't trifle with that as though he were just some sort of soft, gentle Jesus like you've seen in maybe watching a bad 70s Jesus movie. He's also the king. He's also the creator. He's also the one who's ruling everything, including the spiritual realm. Now, Christian, here's an imperative for you. Let's test the implied imperatives in this passage. The fact is, we don't acknowledge these things so well, do we? We don't acknowledge his glory. We don't acknowledge his preeminence. We do in this thing over there, but not to the 10th degree. It's an eight. 
We do it to this thing over there, but not that one. Don't touch it. We don't glory in the truths of Christ like we should. Our hearts are barely stirred. I confess my heart, I know, should be significantly more stirred by these verses than it is. We do better than we used to. Praise God. He is at work in us, but we still fall short. We still have filthy rags in the midst of all this good stuff. The point is this. We still need nothing less than the blood of Christ to reconcile us and bring us to God and put peace in our hearts. We're not home yet. And though there's no imperative in these verses, isn't it very clear that this cuts to the heart of motives and exposes sin that's still there in our church, in our homes, in our lives, and reminds us once again, we still need Jesus. We still can't go without the blood. He died in our place, and that's still our only plea. You see, he is preeminent as the divine image, and he is preeminent in his creation, and he's preeminent in his church, and he must be preeminent and constantly preeminent in our salvation, our reconciliation, the peace of God that came to us through him. When Martin Luther was asked, Martin, don't you think we contribute anything to our salvation? He said, Yeah, we contribute sin and resistance. Jesus did the rest. Jesus did the rest, amen?